This is Pentecost. Everything is different. Everything is new. Everything. This is the birth of the church. The wind swirls, a hurricane blows, the stale air is forced out, the dust disappears in an instant. The air is fresh, the light is all around, the Holy Spirit enters our lives and we become a new creation. It turns us around, turns our lives upside down, blows away the stale and the old. Christ enters our lives and we are made we are made whole this is the birth of the church we are gathered here in this place in this time to be something new to refresh the old to reboot the past to be the church god created us to be to be the new creation this is the pentecost god is here christ is here the spirit is here and we are part of it we are the new creation amen This is Pentecost Sunday, and it marks the birth of the church. And as we get into today's message, I'm going to explain why that's true. I want you to connect your faith to its Jewish roots. I want us to see what the Holy Spirit is doing in the world, but more importantly, what He longs to do in each and every one of our lives. If you would, let's just bow our heads together as we get started. We're going to pray and ask God to just really meet with us during this time. Lord, we are so grateful for this particular Sunday, and especially, Lord, for where we find ourselves in the messages of the Spring Creek family, of, of celebrating the Holy Spirit's arrival into this earth that ushered in the church age, that uh, promised us, Lord, a new presence, that you would be within your people, helping us, empowering us to live your will. I pray today that you would just meet with us where we are with what we're needing. I am so grateful, God, for how you have been moving in the congregation in the prior services, for the people whose lives have been touched and impacted. I pray, God, you'd continue that work right now. In Jesus' name, amen. So Pentecost. Pentecost was actually one of seven Jewish feasts. If you're not familiar, there's actually three different terms that we find in the Bible uh, for Pentecost. One is Pentecost. That's the Greek name. Pentecost literally means 50. So it refers to the time. Pentecost is celebrated seven weeks after Passover. So seven times seven, 49, 50 represents the Greek name. Feast of Weeks is the common name in the Old Testament for this festival. And the word Shavuot is actually the Hebrew name. So we're going to talk about Pentecost, what it was. It had a dual significance to Jewish people. Now please understand, for thousands of years, Jewish people have observed this as one of the seven high holy days among them. First, it marked the beginning of the gathering of the wheat harvest. So it was a celebration, a kind of thanksgiving. But more importantly, it marked the anniversary of the giving of the Torah or the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. One peculiarity about Shavuot is that every year the Jewish when they gather for this special time, which is happening now among the Jewish people, they read from the book of Ruth. You remember this book in the Old Testament? The book of Ruth is about a Gentile woman, in particular a Moabite woman, who ends up being grafted into the lineage of the people of God. So what we're told in the book of Acts 
is that the disciples, remember these are Jewish men and women, they're gathered together in Jerusalem to celebrate the festival of Pentecost. And as they're gathered together, the Bible says this great and mighty wind, this sound of a great and mighty wind filled the house and tongues of fire appeared over each and every one of them. If you want to hear what the scripture says specifically, this is Acts 2 verses 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all gathered together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each one of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Ghost. Now, when I read the Bible, I like to ask questions of the Bible. And one of the questions I asked of this text is why Pentecost? I mean, why did God choose of all the days that he could send the Holy Spirit into the world... Why did God choose the day of Pentecost? Well, remember I told you that one of the peculiarities, one of the things that marks this day, is it is the commemoration, it is the anniversary, if you will, giving of the law in the Old Testament. So what do the giving of the law and the coming of the Holy Spirit have in common? Well, in many ways, the coming of the Spirit into the world is oddly similar to what God did on the top of Mount Sinai. So if you go back in your Bibles to this story, it's Exodus 19 and 20. And in Exodus 19, we read this. Thunder roared and lightning flashed. And a dense cloud came down on the mountain. All of Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord had descended on it in the form of fire. So get this. Every year, thousands of Jewish people all around the world are reading these stories in Exodus 19 and 20, thinking about when God gave the law to the people of God, the thing that marked them as a people of God. And what happens is a great storm occurs on top of Mount Sinai, and then God descends in the form of fire. Pentecost is now a repeat of that same impressive display of power. First, there's a great wind, and the Bible's very descriptive here. It says it's a violent wind. Which reminds them a storm is coming, right? I mean, we live in Texas, and we know that there's supposed to be storms this afternoon. I promise you, before the storm arrives, we're going to feel the wind, aren't we? The wind comes in to say there's a shift in front, something is happening, and the more violent the wind, the more fierce the storm. So we know a storm is about to happen, but not just that. We know that that's immediately followed by this display of fiery tongues that fills the room. A storm followed by the fire of God. It's like God is doing Mount Sinai all over again. In fact, you could say that Pentecost was an updated Sinai. You could also argue that it's an upgraded Sinai because what happened on Mount Sinai only happened with Moses, didn't it? I mean, Moses is there in the presence of God. Moses is in the midst of the storm. Moses sees them experiences the fire of God. But all the people of God, they're not on the mountain with Moses. It's only Moses that has this experience. But when God repeats this, it happens. God's power, God's presence is for all believers. So in the same way, the Old Testament, when God gave the law, that marked the beginning of the people of God, the Hebrew nation. Now God is doing it again. He, he recreates this same miracle. And this Pentecost is now the birth of a new people, the church, God's family, that transcends all of these divides that we seem to divide the people of God into. And not just that. By this time, we understand it's not the rules, it's not the laws that make us the people of God. 
It is God himself who has come to indwell us that marks us as the people of God. So Pentecost is the birthday of the church. Now, do you remember, because this is really explicit in the Old Testament, why God said that one day he would send his Holy Spirit into the world? This is what the prophet Ezekiel told us. He said, this is the words of God, I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. This is the other dominant association of Pentecost with the giving of the spirit and the law coming together. Because when God gave us the law, None of us could obey it. 635 different laws in the Old Testament. Have you studied them all? I promise you break a fair part of them, okay? Because when God gave the law, this was his holiness. This was his demands. This is how he defines righteousness. And the Bible says we all fall short. That's what it means to be a sinner. We can look at the law, but we couldn't obey the law. In fact, Paul writes in the book of Romans that the law became our teacher to lead us to Christ, to show us that we were incapable in and of ourselves to please God. So what does God do? God says, I'm going to send my spirit to live in you, to empower you, to empower your will and to empower your abilities in order to do the things that I want you to do so that your life may please me. This is why he gives the spirit. So that now we can now live out the laws of God. Remember I told you last week, the Bible said God is working in you to make you willing and able to obey his purposes. You remember that? Willing and able. That's what the Holy Spirit's come to do. To change our willingness, to change our will, and also to change our ability so that we can truly play, please God. Now the other really cool connection between Shavuot and, uh, and, and Pentecost is this reading from the book of Ruth. Okay, so the people of God, the Jewish people, are reading this book every year. And the book of Ruth is reminding them that foreigners, strangers, Gentiles, and in particular a Moabite, which was a mortal enemy of the Jewish people, that the Moabites would be grafted in to the people of God. That, that, that Ruth becomes a part of the Jewish nation. And we know, of course, from the lineage of Jesus that Ruth is a part of the lineage of Christ too. And God is sending a message to his people that one day... It's not bloodline. It is not ethnicity. That literally this kaleidoscope of color that fills God's creative world, that they would all come together with his spirit indwelling them all, that the people of God would no longer be defined by their ethnicity or where they were born, but by God's spirit dwelling within them. So that's the backdrop of what I want to talk to you about today. This Pentecost is the birth of the new community. And I'm going to share with you a quote by E. Stanley Jones. E. Stanley Jones was a Methodist minister. He, he lived in India for most of his life as a missionary. He wrote the biography of Gandhi that Dr. King read that inspired him to nonviolence. This is what he said about Pentecost. Pentecost is not a spiritual luxury. It is an utter necessity for human living. The human spirit fails unless the Holy Spirit fills. It is Pentecost or failure. Last week I reminded you that there are only Four New Testament commands related to the Holy Spirit, but they're vitally important. The first one is to live by the Spirit. We talked about this last week, what it means to be empowered by the Spirit. Today we're going to talk about being filled with the Spirit. Those are the two positive commands. There's two negative commands. One is do not grieve, and the other is do not quench the Spirit. So today we want to look more closely at this command that God gives us to be filled with His Spirit. I call the first point, under the influence. So Ephesians 5.18 is where this command is given. Paul writes, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. 
In the New Living Translation, slightly different wording means the same thing. Don't be drunk with wine because that will ruin your life. Instead, let the Holy Spirit fill and control you. So what we notice is Paul is contrasting two things, being drunk and being filled with the Spirit. Why is he contrasting? Why does he put these two different ideas together? Well, what he's doing is he's comparing something we're familiar with with something we're not familiar with. We know what it means to be drunk. Some of us have experienced that. We may not want to admit it in church, but we've experienced We know what it means to be drunk, or we've seen it. We know what being drunk does to people, right? So Paul is saying there's being drunk with wine, and then there's being filled with the Spirit. To be filled with alcohol is to be under its influence. To be filled with the Spirit is to be under His influence. The principle I'll share with you is simple. Whatever dominates your personality determines your behavior. Because that's exactly what alcohol does, doesn't it? I mean, have, have you ever known a drunk? Have you ever seen a drunk? Many times when they drink, their personality changes, doesn't it? I mean, somebody may be a really grumpy person and they become happy and sappy when they're drunk. Other people, it's the opposite, right? They're mean drunks. I mean, they, they do things, they say things that they would never say or do when they're sober. It dominates their personality, so it determines their behavior. Now, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones had this wonderful observation about alcohol. He said, drink is not a stimulus, it's a depressant. We know that. But then he says this, it depresses first and foremost the highest centers of all the brain. They're the very first to be influenced and affected by drink. They control everything that gives a man self-control, wisdom, understanding, discrimination, judgment, balance, and the power to assess everything. So alcohol affects everything you do. It affects your perception. It affects your reaction time. It affects your behavior. Everything is altered to some degree in a person who's under the influence. In that sense, alcohol controls you. But if you let the Holy Spirit control you, then the Holy Spirit controls the best parts of you. Your mind, your heart, and the will to make you your best for Christ. So let's look a little more closely at what exactly this verse is saying. The first thing I'll tell you, I want you to notice, is it's a command. In the Greek language, the verb is imperative, which makes it a command. The implication is to be filled with the Spirit. Whatever that means is not an optional thing for the Christian life. Every Christian is supposed to be filled with the Spirit. This is such an important command because if we don't obey it, the Christian life becomes impossible. You see, the great danger you and I face as believers is not that we're going to do something and renounce our faith and reject God. It's not that we're going to slip into some destructive pattern behavior and somehow lose our salvation. The real danger is that you and I will settle for an ordinary life. That we'll just have a normal and coast through our Christian experience. We'll show up for church. We'll drop some money in the box. We'll wear a smile. We'll be a decent person. But we'll never be changed. We'll never be filled with the Holy Spirit. It was Bible teacher and preacher Beth Moore who made this observation. The modern day church is making do with a few splatters of the Holy Spirit. Here's a second observation. It's in the present tense. Now this is something I need to explain. Sometimes you'll hear a believer say, well, I was baptized in the Spirit five years ago. Please understand, that person is very mistaken in, in, in their understanding of what it means to be filled with the Spirit. They really are. And I'll tell you why. Being filled with the Spirit is a continual process. It means allowing the Spirit to influence our daily lives. It's not a once-for-all decision. It's an hourly decision. It's a moment-by-moment decision. In other words, being filled with the Spirit is not an event. It's a lifestyle. 
By the way, did you know that there are no New Testament commands to be baptized in the Spirit? None. I shared with you the four New Testament commands. That's not one of them. Instead, the Bible tells us to be filled with the Spirit. Why? Because we're all baptized into the Spirit when we give our life to Jesus Christ. Whether or not He's filling us is a matter of whether or not we're allowing Him to fill us, whether we're cooperating with what He's doing. Now, in the Greek language, present tense has this idea of continual action, which means really the best way to translate this verse is something like this. Be constantly controlled by the Spirit, or in the Amplified Bible, be ever filled and stimulated with the Holy Spirit. What I'm saying is spirit filling is a daily kind of thing. The battle is going to be won or lost every single day. You're either going to yield to the Spirit or yield to your baser nature. You know, my friends in AA have taught me a very valuable lesson. They say an alcoholic has to make a decision every single day as to whether or not they're going to drink. Well, you and I have to make a similar kind of choice every single day. Are we going to be yielded to the Holy Spirit? Are we going to allow him to have control and access to our life? Third observation about this command. It's in the passive voice. Now, this is a nuance a lot of people miss. In the Greek, just like in English, a command can be active or passive. If I tell you, go to the store and get some milk, that's an active command. Fill up that hole with dirt, another active command. But that's not what this verse says. This verse doesn't say, go fill yourself with the Spirit, does it? It says, be filled with the Spirit. That's different. That's passive. It'd be like me saying to you, be loved. Go be loved. Well, if I tell you be loved, what that implies is that there's somebody that wants to love you. Because if nobody wants to love you, you can't obey that command, right? And so when the Bible says, be filled with the Spirit, the implication is that the Spirit is ready and willing at any moment to fill us. You don't have to beg, you don't have to bargain to get God to fill you. He wants to do it. The question is, do you want Him to? And that leads to the final observation, it's a plural command. Being a plural command means it's for every single believer. God intends for all of His children to be filled with the Spirit. This is not an experience for the super-Christians, the holy elite, or the charismatic few. God wants each and every one of us. This is the normal Christian life. It's meant for all believers. So let's dig a little deeper. We understand the filling of the Spirit is meant for all of us. It's a daily decision, not a once-in-a-lifetime decision. It's something God does for us, but that still doesn't explain this next question. What does it mean to be filled? Now, let me tell you, there's a lot of well-meaning pastors and churches that get this wrong. What they do is they assume that the word filled means the same thing to us that it meant to the people in the New Testament. So if you were to do this, I did this this past week, I Google image searched filled with the Spirit. And almost all of the images were of a glass of water being filled with water. And I'll tell you what, what that implies is that you and I are the glass and the Holy Spirit is the water. So there might be times I don't have any of the Holy Spirit or I only have part of him and he may be filling me up, he may not be filling me up. The problem with that is this. If you're a believer, you've received the Holy Spirit. You don't get part of a person. You get all the Holy Spirit there is. The issue is never, do I have the Holy Spirit? The issue is always, does he have all of me? Am I yielding to him? Am I cooperating with him? Am I surrendering my life to him? That's the issue. So when the Bible talks about being filled, it uses a very specific word. The Greek word is plerao. I know that doesn't mean anything to any of you, but please understand, it's the most common mistake people make when they're reading the Bible. They read a Bible and they come across a word and they say, well, you know, filled means like fill a glass because that's what I associate with it. 
Well, the most important thing is what did the Bible readers associate with that word? And they did not associate filling the glass. I'll give you three concepts. These are New Testament concepts, the way the word is actually used in the Bible. And the first one is simply this, being carried along. I'll tell you honestly, plerao is a nautical term. It's the term that a sailor would use to describe what it means for his sails on his ships to be filled with wind and for that wind to carry him through the water. So Paul is essentially telling us being filled with the Spirit is like being on a sailing ship and allowing the wind of God to fill your sails. Remember last week I told you this word pneuma for spirit is translated three different ways. One, spirit, another, breath, and the third is wind. And so what we're saying and what Paul is saying is the wind of God is blowing. The wind of the Holy Spirit is blowing. You and I are good sailors and we set our sail to catch the wind. That's what the spiritual disciplines do. The spiritual disciplines discern which way the wind is blowing. We set up our sail and we trim our sail so that we are going with God where he wants us to go. So think of it like this. There's kind of three different ways uh, or three different kinds of watercraft. Uh, one would be a motorboat, one would be a raft, and one would be a sailboat. So some people approach the spiritual life like it's a motorboat. In other words, I'm in charge, I'm running the motor, I decide how fast I want to go, and what direction I want to go. There's a lot of people who think, you know, if I just try hard enough, if I'm really disciplined, I do the right thing, read my Bible and pray every day, I make transformation happen on my own. The problem with that is that's the Pharisees' approach to spirituality, and it only leads to pride. There's a second way. People say, well, I, you know, I've been there, done that, got the t-shirt, and I'm never doing that again. I'm on a raft. I'm totally into grace. And if you say anything at all to them about growing in their spiritual life and cooperating with God, they say, hey, you know, you can stop that right now. No way. I'm, into, I'm not into works. I'm into grace. You're just getting all legalistic on me. And I got to tell you, frankly, there's too many commands in the New Testament for us to think that we're supposed to be passive in the spiritual life. God is the one who transforms us. We don't transform ourselves, but we have a job to cooperate with what God is doing. This is why the spiritual life is more like a sailboat. You don't control the wind. You don't manufacture the wind. What we do is we sense where the wind is blowing. We set our sail so that we're moving with God and he's carrying us along through life. Here's another concept behind the word plerao. It means being permeated. So, so in the New Testament, when they use this word filled, what they meant was something, a substance that permeates another, like salt. You might take salt, and salt permeates whatever you put it on, right? You put it on chips, you put it on steak, you put it in your margarita. I mean, wherever you put it, it permeates whatever substance you put it on. What the Bible tells us is that the Holy Spirit is to permeate our life in such a way that when people get close to us, they sense so much of God that being with us is like being with God. They sense because the Spirit has permeated our personality. So there's a great book by F.B. Meyer. And he said, most people think of the Holy Spirit as a substance to fill us, almost like the gas gauge on your car. You get a little empty of the Holy Spirit, you need a fill up. That, again, is like the, the water cup. It's a bad illustration. But he came up with a better one. He said, have you ever been to Chicago and seen the elevated trains? I don't know if you've ever been. Anybody been to Chicago, rode the, the L? That's what they call it for short, the L. This is a really interesting train because it runs on three rails. Now, if you know anything about this train, it's an electric train. So there's two rails that the, the wheels run on, but that third rail is electrified. 
So as long as the tra train is making contact with the third rail, it can go, it can stop, it can go anywhere that the rails take it. But there's warning signs all over like this. Danger, electric third rail, do not enter. If for some reason you were ever in Chicago and somebody pushed you or you accidentally fell on the tracks, let me give you a word of warning. Don't ever touch the third rail. 750 volts of electricity coursing through that at all times. You will be electrocuted. You could be burned. You could die. I mean, it is powerful. And so there's a sense in which Holy, the Holy Spirit is like the third rail. His power is always available. There's never a power shortage. There's never a brownout. But sometimes we lose contact with that power. And when that happens, life stops working the way God intended. So God wants to fill us in such a way that we're carried through life like a sailboat on the sea. He wants to permeate, to saturate, to flavor our life. He wants us to live our lives in such connectivity to the Holy Spirit that the very power of everything we do and everything we are is happening through him. But the third idea behind plerao is being controlled. So in scripture, another dominant way this word filled is used is about people who are overcome with emotion. Here's an example. Uh, John 16, they were filled with sorrow. In other words, their sorrow was so great, there wasn't room for any other feeling. Or this verse in uh, Luke 5.26, they were filled with fear. Once again, that's plerao. That's saying that this person was so scared. They're scared out of their wits. They have no, not a single ounce of courage in them. Now, most of the time, you and I can keep our feelings in balance and in perspective. Even when we're sad, we can remember things that make us glad that make us happy, that make us grateful. There are always ways that we can balance that off. But sometimes, every one of us in this room have been overcome by emotion. And sometimes, maybe it was a loss. Maybe you lost a parent. Maybe you lost a spouse. God forbid, maybe you lost a child. And in that moment, you were unconsolable. Your, your, your sadness, your sorrow was so great no word said to you could even put a dent in that emotion. That is the word filled. That's plerao. So how does that relate to the filling of the Spirit? Well, let's go back to what Paul's saying in this verse. Drunken people and Spirit-filled people have one thing in common. They're both controlled people. Their lives and behavior are radically controlled by that which fills them. If you're an angry person, then anger controls your life. If you're a greedy person, then greed so dominates your value system that everything about your behavior, your attitudes and your actions, it all reflects that greediness. If you're a very loving person, then love is influencing everything about you. The Holy Spirit, he fills you. And when he fills you, he has a controlling interest in you. Now, that doesn't mean you're a puppet on a string. You know, I mean, I, I, I get so sad when I hear people say, you know, that was a great song. Tell one of our things, that's a great song. And when a singer says, oh, it was, it was all God. And I just want to say, I could swear I saw your lips moving. You know, I mean, I, I, I thought that was you singing. Well, yeah, that's what it means to be controlled by the Spirit. What, what, what that means is God is so using you and your personality that, that, that he is coming through. But it is genuinely and authentically you. I love this story about D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody was a famous evangelist used by God in powerful ways. And this older minister, an envious minister, looked at him and said, what do we need with this Mr. Moody? He's uneducated. He's inexperienced. Who does he think he is anyway? Does he think he has a monopoly on the Holy Spirit? And, an, and a younger, wiser minister said, 
No, he has no monopoly on the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit has a monopoly on Mr. Moody. That's what we need. We need the Holy Spirit to have a monopoly on our life, a complete hold on us. To be full of the Spirit means to be surrendered to what he wants. And as a result, he works powerfully in our life. You know, every week I stand before you, and every week I plead for the Holy Spirit to do in through and for me what I cannot do. I pray that he does something far greater than my preparation for this message. I pray that he's meeting with people in this moment, that he knows what you need, and he's meeting you in that place of need. Because that's not something I can do. And I don't want you leaving here just having listened to a sermon. I want you leaving here having met with God. It's the same way I feel when I'm talking to people one-on-one. What people need is not my wisdom, not my experience, not my perspective. They need the help from God. And I want to be that conduit. I want him to flow that through my life, flavor it through my personality, but allow me to be a conduit to meet a broken world. I'll tell you one other thing. There's no place in the Bible, not one single place, where you hear someone say, I'm a spirit-filled believer. Did you know that? There's not one place in the Bible where somebody declares, this is a spirit-filled church. This, this, this moniker, this being described as spirit-filled, is always someone describing someone else. They're full of the Holy Spirit. He's full of the Holy Spirit. She's full of the Holy Spirit. Which means the answer to the question, are you spirit-filled, is you tell me. In other words, are people seeing evidence of the life of God on you? That's not a name that we put on ourselves. That's a name other people would say about us. Which leads me to this final thing. What you have and fail to utilize. Now let me just say, there's some things with the coming of the Spirit in the book of Acts that sincere believers, people who love Jesus, people who follow Jesus, disagree about. The book of Acts is one of the most challenging books in the Bible to understand. It's one of the few books in the Bible I have taught verse by verse, word by word, in my old church to a Sunday school class. It's a very challenging book for a lot of reasons. One, it's narrative literature, so it's not like the rest of the New Testament. It's, it's story. And because it's story, there's some unique rules that apply to its interpretation. But it's a book about constant change. And there's a lot of firsts in this book. Like, for example, they're, they're debating, you know, are Christ followers merely just a sect of Judaism? Or are they something else entirely? And the Jewish people are asking, how much of our Jewishness do we hold on to? How much do we let go of? What is God doing among the Gentiles? And what should our attitude be toward them? And then there's this whole thing about the entry of the Holy Spirit into the world. Is this something descriptive or is it prescriptive? In other words, this initial outpouring of the Holy Spirit of God in Acts, which is identified as the baptism of the Spirit, is this something that would happen over and over and over again throughout church history? Or was it something special to mark the coming of the Spirit into the world? Now, Christians of all persuasions have answered these questions differently. I don't have the time to give you a full and exhaustive explanation for that. It would actually take two or three messages to do that. But I will tell you what I believe. I believe that the baptism of the Spirit in the book of Acts was descriptive. It's what accompanied the coming of the Spirit into the world, into both the Gentile and the Jewish worlds. But it is not something separate from conversion for the believer today. Like I mentioned, there is not a single command in the New Testament to be baptized in the Spirit. There, are, there is the command to be filled with the Spirit. So there are some Christians today who treat the Holy Spirit like spiritual extra credit. Like you have this level of Christian life and you get extra credit if you get the Holy Spirit. 
I want to tell you that's not taught in Scripture. I want to show you several verses that say otherwise. Romans chapter 8, verse 9. This is Paul. But you, speaking to believers, you're not controlled by your sinful nature. You're controlled by the Spirit, if you have the Spirit of God living in you. And now notice this caveat. This is still Paul talking. And remember that those who do not have the Spirit of Christ living in them do not belong to him at all. So, so Paul is saying, listen, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not even a believer. You're not in the family. Okay? So when we give our life to Christ, we receive the Holy Spirit. Peter could not be clearer. Having the Holy Spirit is a given in the Christian life. Look at what he says. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, and which makes these simultaneous, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So again, we receive the Holy Spirit when we are forgiven of our sins and we repent. Notice this verse. This is Ephesians 1. It's a powerful verse. Paul writes, when you believed, so this is when this happens. When you believed, you were marked in him, in God, with a seal. What is that seal? The promised Holy Spirit. Who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Paul says, when you believe, when you surrender to Christ, when you trusted him as your forgiver and leader, when you, when you believed, he marked you with a seal. And that seal was the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit, literally in the Greek, it says he's the earnest money. Anybody ever bought a house? You had to come up with a nice chunk of change to put down that contract, right? And that was called earnest money. What did that mean? The earnest money meant I'm going to keep my promise. I'm going to do my due diligence. I'm going to work through this contract and barring something unforeseen that maybe you talked to me about, something like that. I'm going to be true on my word and I'm going to close on this contract. That's what earnest money is. God says, I put the Holy Spirit in your life when you believed. That's my earnest money. That says, when I put my spirit in you, he's my guarantee. I'm going to complete what I started. I'm going to finish what I started in you. I'm going to make you whole and complete in every way. One more verse. Paul writes, some of us are Jews, some of us are Gentiles, some are slaves, some are free. But we have all been baptized into one body by one spirit, and we all share the same spirit. In this verse, Paul is saying, we have all. Emphasis on the word all. We are all members of the body of Christ. We're all baptized into one spirit, and we all share the same spirit. You have the Holy Spirit. Now, I realize the debate between charismatics and non-charismatics can be strong around these issues. But upon one thing, all believers agree. You and I are commanded to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It doesn't matter if you're charismatic or non-charismatic. That's what the Bible explicitly says. I love the way Billy Graham said it. Listen to this. I don't care what you call it. Just get it. And that's really what I'm saying today. You know, you may have a different perspective than me. That's fine. God's going to sort all that out in eternity. But you and I are commanded to be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. Allow God to fill your life every single day, and we're obeying this command. So let me wrap up with a story, a true story, in Texas at the height of the Great Depression. It's about a man. His name is Ira Griffith Yates. He owned a ranch called Yates Pool. Have you ever heard of it? It's out in West Texas. So this is the height of the Great Depression. He's living on a subsidy, some government help. He can't make it. He's a cattle rancher. He's not making enough money. He can barely feed his own family. Can't keep him enclosed. I mean, it is just terrible. And it looks like he's about to lose his ranch and file for bankruptcy. 
all of a sudden, as he's grazing his cattle over these West Texas hills and he's contemplating his future, which looks totally bleak, this seismographic crew comes up to him and says, we think there may be oil on your land. Now, this is a day and a time before they had the kind of radar we have today that suggested strongly there might be oil in certain places. They were just doing wildcat wells, which means we're going to put a well in the ground and see what happens, right? And that's what they wanted to do. And so they leased some land from Mr. Yates on his ranch, and the first well that they dug at 1,115 feet, huge oil reserve, they called it a gusher. The first well came in at 80,000 barrels a day. Many subsequent wells were twice as large. 30 years after the discovery, a government test tested just one of the wells and showed it had a potential flow of 125,000 barrels a day. So in West Texas, when Mr. Yates died, this is the article that came out, talked about his story facing bankruptcy when they found the gusher. But two-thirds of the way down in large print, his field, the most prolific in Texas, has potential yield of 8,221,850 barrels a day. Living like a pauper, sitting on a gold mine, right? A millionaire. And when I hear that story, I think that's Pentecost. God sent his spirit into the world at Pentecost. We have the Holy Spirit. We have this wealth. We have this power. We have this new energy in our life. And many of us, we live like paupers. We, we live as we're supposed, like we're supposed to be defeated all of our life. Like, like sin always has the upper hand, that, that, that we can't do the things God's asking us to do. And he said, I put my spirit in you so that you could please me, so that you could do life the way I want you to live, so that, so that you would have the power to obey my commands. So last week I left you with a prayer. Do you remember that prayer? It was a real simple prayer. More of you, less of me. Right? More of you, less of me. This week, I want you to add to that prayer. I mean, really what we want, we want more of God. When I say more of God, not that we get more of the Holy Spirit than what we have. We have all the Holy Spirit. But we're saying we want more of his influence. We want more of his power. We want more of his strength. We want more of his grace. We want more of his holiness. We want more of his discernment. That's what we're asking. God, we want more of that, less of me. I want you to fill me. I want you to have controlling interests in my life. I want you to my personality. I want to be moved through life like you move a sailboat. I want to stay in contact with that third rail so that I have the power to do every day the things you're calling on me to do. I need more of, and where do you need it? Where do you need it? I need more love in my marriage. I need more discernment with my kids. I need more strength to do my job. I need more willpower to conquer this terrible addiction. I need something, God, that only you have, something you provided. You have set me on this huge, rich land called the Holy Spirit. It is a gusher. I have more than what I need in you. God, let me access that so that I might live in such a way that when people see me, they would say, that person's spirit-filled. That person's living for God. That person's fully surrendered to his power and to his purposes. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much that we have this time to look at your word, to explore what you have to say, to see and plumb the depths of your wisdom. Thank you, God, that you have given us, and we celebrate on Pentecost the coming of the Holy Spirit into the world. We have you. We have you in abundance. We have all of you that we need. But many times, God, you don't have us. 
We are not yielded to you. We're not surrendered to you. Like the alcoholic who every day makes a decision about his sobriety, God, every day we must make a decision about whether we will depend on you or depend on ourselves. So help us to live in a surrendered kind of way. More of you, less of me. More of your wisdom, more of your strength. More of your love, more of your patience. More of your peace, more of your understanding. More of your goodness, more of your gentleness. God, we need more of that. And we need it in our families. We need it in our business. We need it in our personal life. We need it in our marriage. We need it in our school, and we need it in our vocation, and we need it in our calling. We need it in this church, God. We need more of you and a whole lot less of us. So God, help us this day to make a determination that each day we will live our life in a yielded kind of way to you. Trusting, Lord, that you place the Holy Spirit within us to energize and change our will and to energize and change our abilities so that we might live lives that please you. In Christ's name, amen. God bless you all.